listening to the Bible 126 show. Okay, well, we are in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, as most of you probably realize, we are going into the Torah, five books of Moses, unquestionably the most venerated portion of text the world over for centuries. It obviously is is venerated by Christians, books of Moses. And Jesus authenticated those books as having been written by Moses. But it's also the most venerated portion of Scripture to the Jews. And even Jewish uh, sects of all different kinds that have different views about different things all will hold the Torah in high veneration. So we're moving into the Torah, and we're going to be dealing with that book that Jesus quotes from more than any other book in the Bible. That should get our attention. Should get our attention. Any book in the Bible is precious, is supernatural, and is there for you and I. But the, the Torah speaks to all of us, not just people of a Jewish background, not just for an Old Testament background of the New Testament. No, no, no. If you, I'm hoping that you've been with us long enough to realize that these 66 books are an integrated message penned by 40 different guys over thousands of years, yet every detail, I, I hold the view that every word, every place name, every detail is there by deliberate design of the creator of the universe. And once you begin to discover that for yourself, not because I said it for heaven's sakes, but when you begin to get sensitized to that and begin to discover that, it all ties together in a way that's not only remarkable, it is supernatural. Because these books that were written thousands of years earlier anticipate the details of things that happened thousands of years later. It all ties together. You begin to realize that the origin of this message is from outside the dimensionality of time itself. And so with that kind of a background, we're going to move into the Torah. Specifically, we're starting the book of Deuteronomy. This is the first uh, session. And we're going to uh, just explore briefly chapters 1 and 2. There are 34 chapters in the book, so that means we'll probably have about 16 sessions altogether, and uh, um, we'll just jump in. Now, most of you know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are the five books of the Torah, sometimes called by, from the Greek term, the Pentateuch. The Jewish term would be the Torah. Genesis, the book of beginnings. Exodus, the birth of the nation itself. Leviticus, the law of the nation. And Numbers, the wilderness wanderings. The book of Deuteronomy is, is generally viewed as the laws reviewed. And um, I'm trying to say that politely because the name is a misnomer. We'll come to that in a minute. Moses, is, is at, it's at near the end of his tour of duty. And he's reviewing both their history and the law as an exhortation to them. You're hearing the sermons, in effect, of Moses in this twilight um, time. Now, Deuteronomy can be viewed as the bridge between the first four books, which are outside the land, and the next seven, which are inside the land. Because from Deuteronomy on, you've got Joshua, they're in the land. And up till Deuteronomy, numbers, they're in the wilderness, they're not in the land. So this is the bridge between uh, that in that sense. One of the things we'll cover next time, or I should say actually the session after next, is the Shema, probably the most quoted, the most available piece of scripture in the world because it's inside every mezuzah, almost every mezuzah uh, throughout on every Jewish threshold. What is the Shema? What does it mean for you and I? Jesus quoted from it to identify the great commandment, and, he, and yet he adds a subtlety. We'll talk about that when we get to it. And the fact that Jesus quoted from this book more than any other book is something that we all should just be sensitized to and realize that, that that's a way of giving it a big underline. It'll, it'll close with the Song of Moses, as it's called. I want to talk just a little bit about the Graf-Wellhausen hypothesis. There are those, and you'll find it taught still in many seminaries, that, well, Moses didn't really write the five books of Moses. They had JPQF, and they, have, they give names to these presumed sources, and you go through all of that nonsense. Those are deceits out of the pit of hell. They've been taught that it was popular from the, the, the so-called German critical school. It's still taught in seminaries, but it's a denial of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ quoted from each of these books and attributed to Moses. So if the Graf-Wellhausen hypothesis is correct, then Jesus is wrong. Take your pick. Now, we could spend a lot of time proving that. I'm not going to waste your time on that. 
Because anyone that believes in Jesus Christ and is trusting him for their salvation can just take comfort in the fact that he authenticated these five books as coming from Moses. And if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you've got much bigger problems than the authorship of the books of Moses. So we'll just move on. Deuteronomy chapter 1 starts out, These be the words, <laughs> come back to that phrase in a minute, which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain over and against the Red Sea, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hatzeroth, and Dizabab. Now, the word in the, the first few words in the Hebrew, Elahadabarim, means these be the words. And that happens to be the Hebrew title of this book. One of several, but that's the, because as J- Jewish things often do, they love acrostics, take the first letter of you know, things. They also often take just the first few words to be the identifier to the whole parchment. And that's, that's the way it is in the Hebrew. However, the Septuagint, the translation of the Hebrew into Greek, three centuries before Christ's ministry, uh, called this the Deuteronomon, which is uh, Deutero means two, and, uh, or second, if you will. And uh, nominion is, is law. It's the second reading of the law. Many people regard this book as the second law, the second reading of the law. It is in a sense because Moses is going to review all this and make a sermon out of it in effect. Um, but because the Septuagint translated that way, um, the, the Vulgate, that was Jerome's Latin translation in the 4th century, he labeled the book from the Greek, uh, Deuteronomy, which is... Uh, 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 basically uh, uh, where we get the word Deuteronomy. So we get the label of the book from the Greek, which uh, doesn't have any direct connection to the Hebrew label for the book. So a little background, nothing critical, but just be sensitive to it. And uh, the words of Moses. We're, we're dealing here with the words of Moses. See, if you look back here, these be the words which Moses spake. This, in effect, is not just a, written by the... Uh, Moses, as the other books were, these are his words, and we want to talk a little bit about that. Realize who Moses was. He's so, you know, there's a danger when something's really familiar that we tend to presume. And uh, let's stop and just take, put, try to put Moses in perspective. He was the founder of Israel's religion, if I can express it that way. He was the mediator of the covenant. We'll come into that in, in the Deuteronomy chapter 5. He was Israel's first prophet. And, uh, now, he's so identified in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10. See, though God called Abraham a prophet, back in Genesis 20, uh, Israel didn't then exist as a nation. So if I want to, I can argue that Moses is the first prophet to the nation. And, uh, uh, and so uh, through Moses, God set a, such a high standard um, for the people that all subsequent prophets, up until Christ, of course, lived in the shadow of Moses. Moses was unquestionably the most venerated of the prophets. And uh, so it's not surprising that in the uh, New Testament, Moses is the most often quoted uh, prophet in the New Testament. He's, he's, the most quote, he's the most quoted Old Testament person in the New Testament. And uh, so Deuteronomy is essentially a series of sermons by this guy. And it's interesting that Moses' words are addressed to all Israel. The expression all Israel occurs at least 12 times in, in, the, in the book. And, of course, the death of Moses in Deuteronomy 34 was obviously added, most scholars presume it was added by Joshua, the last few verses, because his book follows. And uh, that's, that, that's, some people try to argue, well, that proves that Moses didn't write it. No, it proves that Moses didn't write the last few verses. You see, So there's a couple of other inserts of editorial inter- inserts we'll talk about when we get there. And the death of Moses is going to be an interesting issue because we're going to find... There's some very strange things that we'll, come, we'll deal with when we get to the death of Moses. Moses. Michael fights with Satan over the body of Moses. Why? Nobody knows. Why should Michael care about this decaying body who's replaced with the resurrection body? I mean, what, what's so unique about the body of Moses? Nobody knows. Interestingly, but the big issue in the book of Jude. And Moses shows up at the transfiguration in Matthew 17. Why? So we'll talk about that when we get there. And he, is it possible that he is one of the two witnesses of Revelation, Revelation 11? I think he is. Different people have different theories, but uh, for a number of reasons we'll cover at that time, uh, I suspect that both he and Elijah are the two witnesses, but that's just one person's conjecture. 
Verse 2. We're making good progress. Now the second verse. There are, it says in verse 2, There are 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of the Mount Seir uh, unto Kadesh Barnea. This is a rough map, if you will, and this is the path to Jabal al-Laws. Now, most many of your Bibles presume that they went to Mount Sinai, Sinai Peninsula. There is a problem with that. There's absolutely no evidence for it. Hundreds of years of study, they can't find a trace of evidence on the Sinai Peninsula that's Mount Sinai. In fact, it doesn't fit for lots of reasons. I won't go into all that. The great discovery of recent years is the, 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 the Jabal al-Laws, the mountain we believe is the Mount Sinai. Just as Paul said it was in Galatians, it's in Arabia, not in the so-called Sinai Peninsula. And it turns out there's all kinds of evidence that that is indeed Mount Sinai, not the least of which the mountain itself has been m- melted from the outside in. The granite is molten. It's dark. You see a picture of the top third, two-thirds of it is dark black. You go up there and you break the granite. It has been heated intensely from the outside and so forth. And there's also all kinds of uh, find altars and cryptographs. There's, there's a lot of evidence. I won't get it all here. But this, this, it turns out, anyway, from Jabal al-Laz, they go up to, through the wilderness of Sin, come back to Ezengeber, and then they finally go back up to uh, we're going to trace it through Edom, Moab, and Bashan. Moses is going to review their history. And it's not my intent to go through all here, but just to give you a general acquaintanceship with the zones we'll be dealing in. You notice that Edom is east of the Jordan, well south of the Dead Sea. That's the area called Edom. Very closely associated with just north of Midian. Midian is where Moses spent his uh, 40 years before he went, before the Exodus. And he also, uh, that's, it's the zone that he ends up taking him in um, later. North of Edom is Moab. And we'll be talking about Mo- the Moabites and so forth. Very important. They're, just visualize that just east of the Dead Sea and you're pretty close. North of all that is Bashan. We would associate it with the Golan Heights and so on. And, of course, to the west is the land of Canaan itself. So we'll be talking about that. Verse 3. It came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spake unto the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them. Now it's interesting that in the Old Testament, God is addressed by an unpronounceable name. It's spelled with four letters, a yot, a he, a vav, and another he. Y-H-W-H is a, is a, is a close approximation, but we don't know what the vowels are pronounced like. And many people will use the term Yahweh as the term. And many good, more advanced Bible helps will typically use Yahweh, if you're not familiar with that. Many of us are familiar with the old German, Jehovah, because we mispronounce it. Yehovah is another conjecture as to how it was pronounced. And in the, in the, in the, in the German, you've got the J for the Yehovah. And, uh, uh, and it's become Jehovah in many of our songs, and many people are familiar with that term. But um, that's the, tr- the, the term, though, wh- however you choose to pronounce it, is the name of God, or many names of God, that's the name of God that emphasizes personal covenant relationship with the nation. El Shaddai is the Almighty. It emphasizes him as the creator or the provider. El Shaddai is actually a breast. It's the provision is the idea. But anyway, the, they're different names. But when you're trying to emphasize the covenant, you'll discover that here, especially in the, in the Torah, the Yehovah or Yahweh term is uh, used. Now, it's very interesting that um, sometime after the Old Testament canon was completed, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of the 5th century B.C., for some what I'll call superstitious reasons, the Jews were fearful of pronouncing his name or mispronouncing it, so they, did, they made it unpronounceable, and they substituted Adonai. When they come across him, they, they use a, a, a different word, so they're not pronouncing the unpronounceable name of God. So in the Jewish community, you'll often see they won't even spell God. It'll be G-D, not G-O-D. You know, they, they, they lean over back, and we may smile at those kind of quaint practices on the one hand. On the other hand, they're just trying to be diligent to venerating the name of God by doing that. Now, for Christians' Day, we no longer address God as Yehovah um, in our prayers because God's personal rep- uh, revelation of himself in Jesus Christ uh, is, is one of the benefits we enjoy. And furthermore, from the New Testament, we know that you and I, if we're in Christ, know God as our Father. That's in John 14 and John 20 and Re- Romans 1, 8, 
1 Corinthians 1, all through the, the New Testament, it's a, it's a designation that is a very infrequent in the Old Testament, but very pervasive in the New Testament because we have that relationship through Christ. And it's interesting that Jesus always called him Father, except once when he hung on the cross, when he screamed out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he couldn't address him there as Father because he was in our shoes at that time. But So the authority, anyway, of the, even in the very first speech is that Moses is speaking for this, uh, for God. Now, the, 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 the word Lord is, when well, you see that in your English Bible, that's the Yahweh, the Yehovah, if you will, or the uh, Yehovah, however. As Christians, um, our concept of God is fully realized in Jesus Christ. That's emphasized in the opening verses of Hebrew, uh, the epistle of Hebrews. And we know God personally as the Father from the passages I mentioned, John 14, 20, Romans 1, 8. Down to verse 4. We're moving along. <laughs> After he had slain Sihon, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt in Hezbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, which dwelt at Ashtaroth in Andrei. So this, this episode of reading is after all this, but Moses is going to re- give us a history lesson. I'm not going to dwell on it here because we're going to dwell on it later in chapter 2. We're going to go into a little bit more. But these are two kings, Sihon and Og. They're, associate them, if you will, with what we think of today as the Golan Heights. It was the area of Bashan. And the, they were Amorite kings, and we'll get into it. And uh, Sihon, uh, uh, Numbers 21 deals with this historically, and we will deal with it in a, in a, in a look back on it on, uh, in Deuteronomy uh, at the end of chapter 2. Continuing, verse 5 and 6 of chapter 1. On this side of the Jordan in the land of Moab began Moses to declare this law, saying, The Lord our God spake unto us in Horeb, saying, Ye have dwelt long enough in this mountain. So he's going to refer to the first attempt to enter the promised land. He's going to talk about that here for uh, the rest of the, pretty much the rest of this chapter. The word here, to declare, is actually uh, ba'ar which is uh, to make plain, distinct, to instruct or expound. He declares the law. It's the word we would use, exposit, or expound the law. Whenever that's used, it usually has adverbs with it, like very clearly, and uh, to make it plain. So it's not just reading the law, declaring it like, okay, this is what it says. No, he, he, he's going to explain the real demands of it. And uh, it's interesting that the, uh, the verb that the word declared comes from literally means to dig, Bear means to dig, dig a well. Bear Sheva is the well of the covenant in Bear Sheva. Bear, it's that same word. So it's expounding in the sense you're going to dig deep. So we think of an expositional Bible study that way, where you take not just what the Bible says, the exegesis is what does it say, the exposition is what does it really mean to dig into it. And that's what we're doing here. In fact, Paul, understand, Paul refers to the law as our schoolmaster, you may recall, in Galatians 3, verses 24 and 25. So the law is in, there to instruct us. And if you're familiar with the book of Romans in chapters 5 and 6, you'll discover that one of the purposes of the law will shock you. The purpose of the law is so that you will sin more. You think I'm kidding. You should be shocked. But check it out. It's actually to reveal our sin so that we will to, to make it inescape, to make our position inescapable so we really understand where we stand. And that bothers you. I hope it does. If it doesn't bother you, you weren't listening. And if you're bothered, just read carefully uh, Romans 5 and 6. Dig into that. You'll find it. The law is a very, very critical topic. Now, this generation that Moses is talking to, it's at the end of the 40 years wilderness. So you're dealing the old guard, the people that didn't have the guts to cross over Kedesh Barnea, uh, are gone by design. They're wiped out. It's the new generation that's afoot. So Moses got a burden here to teach them because they're the ones that are going to carry the, the purpose of God into the new land and, and, and under Joshua and all of that. So they've had um, 38 years here of, of uh, distance between the events of the Exodus and the things that are right on the horizon now. The word declare, this law, ba'ar, to make plain, distinct, and uh, to declare, expound. So, and the word law here, by the way, is Torah. The Torah is the law. But your myopic, if you visualize that as a, rule, a list of rules, 
It's really the Torah. It's not just the law. It's direction for us and instruction is the idea. But let's move on to verse 6 and 7. The Lord our God spake unto us in Horeb, saying, Ye have dwelt long enough in this mount. <laughs> Apparently been hanging around there long enough. Okay, Turn you and make your journey and go to the mount of the Amorites and unto all the places nigh thereunto in the plain, in the hills and in the vale and in the south and by the seaside, to the land of the Canaanites and unto Lebanon, to the great river, the river Euphrates. I might mention, by the way, the first words of this speech. The Lord, Jehovah, if you will, uh, our God has a particular emphasis in the Hebrew and it sets the tone for the entire speech. In the book of Deuteronomy, the words, the Lord our God, occurs almost 50 times. That's the main refrain all the way through here. And because Jehovah is the sovereign of Israel's history, right from the beginning and all the way through. We need to, you need to understand there is an absolutely unique, inviolable relationship the creator of the universe and these this peculiar people. And we're going to be talking about the land. And it should not escape you that Satan and the world's challenge to their land is going on today. As we're having this Bible study, there are meetings and there's you know, roadmaps being proposed and the big powers are all meddling in the Middle East with total oblivion to the fact that they're poking a finger in the eye of God by partitioning it. So Britain failed to deliver the land that the League of Nations had allocated for Israel by peeling off 75% and declaring it the state of Jordan. There's your Palestinian state. And on it goes from there. The world is Satan's domain. And the world is anti-Semitic. More deeply than any idea. The, the world hates the Jews almost as much as the Democrats hate Bush. Almost. <laughs> Verse 7, turn you, take your journey and go to the Mount of Amorites and unto all the places nigh there unto, unto the plain and the hills and the vale south and by the seaside, the land of the Kenites and unto Lebanon and the great river, river Euphrates. You know, it's interesting, David and Solomon's empires extended to the Euphrates, uh, we find in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings 4 and so forth, but, um, and many of the peoples of that ter- territory were subjects only in the sense that they paid tribute. They weren't really conquered by the Israelites. So the land wasn't fully possessed by them. So in a sense, their boundaries went that far. In a sense, they didn't. And if you're troubled by some of the prophecies that deal with that, realize that will be fulfilled in the millennium. When people want to talk about the West Bank, ask them, which river did you have in mind? You see, and Jordan is not the boundary of what God has in mind here. Okay. Verse 8 and 9, Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give unto them and to their seed after them. This um, command should not have shocked their hearers. That The promise of the same land had been given in a covenant centuries before to Abraham and and Isaac and uh, uh, Jacob and sworn by an oath. You really need to understand that. Put it in notes, Genesis 15 and 17. And in Genesis 26, where it's recommitted to Isaac and Jacob. And, uh, and Genesis 28 and Genesis 35. This is uh, reiterated. This, is, this should not be new to them. And uh, these three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are mentioned seven times in the book of Deuteronomy. And, of course, Moses left, is leaving no doubt about the nature of this promise. It was gracious, and most of all, it was Permanent permanent. You will see this underscored throughout the Bible, throughout the Psalms, throughout the New Testament. And the great shock that you'll discover is that many churches, I'll even say that most churches, have no grasp of that. They they espouse a brand of theological presumptions called replacement theology, that the church replaces Israel. And that does violence. If, If that's true, then God can't be trusted. That's the danger of that particular view, aside from a lot of other issues. It, 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 it in effect, is attacking the character of God. So, uh, so from Abraham on, uh, ever since Moses' time especially, every Israelite was supposed to realize that he stood in God's inviolable promise. And uh, that will be, uh, that's going to be, uh, uh, that command to take possession will occur 18 times in the book of Deuteronomy. 
and the emphasis is uh, throughout the Psalms and so forth. Okay, so let's move on. Verse uh, 10. The Lord your God hath multiplied you, and behold, ye are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. And, uh, you know, if any nation ever had doubt about God's intention or ability to fulfill his ancient covenant with Abraham, um, she had only look at her present, con- present condition. Israel had become so numerous that they were like the stars. They, they, they had grown from a family in Egypt to uh, being, being virtually innumerable. And uh, that's exactly what God promised. Abraham, Isaac, you may recall, Genesis 15 and, and uh, so on. So the nation's growth alone proves that God's intentions are, uh, 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 and its ability to fulfill his promises were operative here. Now the God of your fathers is... Uh, in the next verse, verse 11, The Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times so many more as ye are, and bless you as he hath promised you. That's Moses' thing. Now, God of your fathers, you know, this is a common title of the Lord in Deuteronomy. And uh, the Lord your God occurs over 250 times in this book, book of Deuteronomy. And again, the whole idea is to separate the living God from some abstract pagan concept. They were pulled out of, out of um, Egypt, which was a you know, pagan idol-worshipping culture. But when you say idol-worshipping culture, in our minds that sort of associates that, well, that's with ignorant savages or something. No, whenever you're dealing with abstract, worldly God concepts of some kind, you're dealing with something other than the living God. And uh, so this is, you know, God is dis- distinguishing himself from any of these other ideas, however meritorious they may seem. He is the living God. And he's a living God that likes to make and keep his promises. That makes him very distinct from Allah. Allah is presented as the unknowable one. He's capricious. He can do anything. That means he's not trustworthy. The God of the Old Testament delights in making and keeping his promises. That distinguishes. It's a different concept altogether from the, them things. So, Lord God of your fathers, very key thought all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. And the Lord your God appears over 250 times. So those are, I'm, I'm spending a little time as we get started here to give you the flavor of this book to get us started on the right foot. Verse uh, 12. How can I myself alone bear your cumbrance and your burden and your strife? And the, uh, see, the fulfillment of this particular promise he just mentioned has created a problem. There's so many, he can't handle it. <laughs> It's a big operation. It isn't just a family. There, you've got, you know, probably in the neighborhood of a couple million people here. And it's become too large for him to govern uh, effectively. And uh, Exodus 18 is, it goes through all this stuff. So he had, appear, he had to uh, appoint military commanders, leaders, if you will, officials, maybe scribes, administrators, judges, and so forth, and uh, so forth. So, so he goes, he says, Take you wise men and understanding, known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. And he answered me and said... The thing which thou hast spoken is good for us to do. And I understand what he's doing here. He is recapping that which, if you've been reading through the Torah, that'll be familiar to you, because that happened in Exodus. Many of these things he's talking about happened in Exodus, Numbers, and, uh, and so on. So. so I took the chief of your scribes, wise men and known, and made them heads over you, captains of, uh, over thousands, and captains over hundreds, and captains over fifties, and captains over tens, and officers among your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the causes between your brethren, and judge righteously between every man and his brother, and the stranger that is with him. And so, this is not incidental to his sermon that's coming. It's very, very critical uh, that, uh, to exercise concern in choosing these wise men and to make sure they're fair, they're, they judge fairly, and uh, furthermore, that they are impartial in their judgments. You shall not respect persons in judgment, but you shall hear the small as well as the great. You shall not be afraid of the face of man, for the judgment is God's. And the cause that is too hard for you, bring it to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at the time of all the things which you should do. So it's interesting. What God is trying to do through Moses is to... The whole whole point of their conquest of the land in the first place was for Israel to establish righteousness. That was one of their objectives. Righteousness and holiness in the promised land. Why? Because ultimately they will do it for the whole world. Many people overlook that. But that will become, that'll come up. The eschatological implications of all this will come up in Deuteronomy chapter 28 as we get there. So it, uh, it took faith for Israel to conquer the land, but it'll take even more faith for them to administer justice in the land because here they will encounter continual opposition. And uh, 
You know, the heroics of one day are easy. The heroics of enduring are a totally different kind and vastly more critical. And that's what he's dealing with here. Okay. So now we're going to deal with the failure at Kadesh Barnea. Most of you are familiar with the story, but Moses is just recapping it here. He says, And when we departed from Horeb, that's a synonym for Mount Sinai, if you will, we went through all the great and terrible wilderness he saw by the way of the mountain of the Amorites as the Lord our God commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. Before they got to Kadesh Barnea, they had traveled through this terrible, terrible desert wilderness and over 100 miles, maybe close to twice that, maybe, somewhere in that range. And essentially a waterless wilderness. And uh, this would create hunger in their hearts. It would give them a, a motivation, if you will, for the opportunity to uh, 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 get at the promised land for the Father to uh, provide for them and uh, give God an opportunity to demonstrate his fatherly provision, which, of course, he does in so many ways. And uh, so the combination of these, the hunger for the land and the confidence in his power is what uh, is uh, intended to be demonstrated here. And um, they're going to be necessary if they're going to accomplish the goal that they're set out to do, which is to... And the, so Moses continually promises, uh, uh, admonishes the people not to be afraid, but the, uh, it also shows, it gives you some feeling for the enormity of the task before because it's all, this is all, in effect, preparation. Moses goes on and says, I said unto you, ye are come unto the mountain of the Amorites, which the Lord our God doth give unto us. Behold, the Lord thy God hath set the land before thee. Go up and possess it. As the Lord God of thy fathers has said unto thee, Fear not, neither be discouraged. And you came near unto me, every one of you, and said, We will send men before us, and they shall search out the land, and bring us word again by what, we, what way we must go up, and into what cities we shall come. Notice, the idea of sending spies in were the people's idea. God agrees to it, but he didn't require it. That was their idea. He says, Okay, fine. They're going to reconnoiter. That's, that's, just, that's good stewardship. Check it out. Know the terrain. And so um, they sent out um, uh, 12 men, one from each tribe, as you all know, as spies into the land. And uh, the, uh, it was not really an act of unbelief. It's an act of just good stewardship, really. And when the spies returned, part of the report, part of the report was encouraging. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, had a bunch of grapes that was so large they had to carry it on a staff between their shoulders. You've all seen pictures of that. They called the grapes of Eskol. And uh, you had Joshua and Caleb with this bar and this huge bunch of grapes. It has become the traditional symbol of the Ministry of Tourism. You'll see it on their, on their coat of arms, so to speak. And it's become an idiom of, 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 of the, the, the plenty in the land. But the other ten guys were a little shook up because they find in the land giants. That's the way it's translated in your Bible. They did happen to be large, but that isn't the frightening part. They apparently were hybrids. To really understand these things, you need to have done your homework in Genesis 6 to really understand what Noah's flood was all about. That these strange hybrids were so prevalent before the flood, that's why God sent the flood, if you study Genesis 6. And I won't take the time in our introduction here to go through all that. But the thing that many people who know that are surprised to discover that it didn't end there. It was so prevalent before the flood, that's why God sent the flood, and that's a whole study I invite you to dig into. But in verse 4 of Genesis chapter 6, it was there and also after that that these things happened. And they're called Nephilim, or the fallen ones, because they were, they were some kind of uh, hybrid between the fallen angels and the women. It was Satan's attempt to, to contaminate the human race to avoid... The appearance. We'll come to that in a little stu- side study here as we go. But uh, uh, anyway, because the Nephilim are in the land, ten of these guys are really shook up. They're frightened, and the wall and the and the, the towns have, have are are incredibly well fortified, so they're terrified, and that that's going to cost them dearly. Anyway, they said, they said uh, we must go up. And what city shall we come? And then verse twenty-three. And the saying pleased me well, and I took twelve men of you, one of a tribe, and they turned and went up into the mountain and came into the valley of Eschol and searched it out. And they took of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down unto us and brought us word again and said, It is a good land that the Lord our God has given us. And not, notwithstanding, ye would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. See, in other words, the ten of the twelve gave such a negative outlook, they didn't have the guts to take God at his word. And you and I, as we read the story, will say, my goodness, why, what's wrong with these people? 
They had the Red Sea parted. They had manna provided them supernaturally. They had all these experiences over 38 years. Why would they lose faith? That they, why didn't they go in there? It's easy for us to say we're on the sidelines, quarterbacking, you're Monday morning quarterbacking. Huh? Let me say something right now. God will find a new way every day to ask you, do you trust me? God will ask you a different way every day. Do you trust him? That was their problem. They didn't trust God. So as we start to look at these people, let's uh, be careful that the shoe doesn't fit. Moses goes on and says, Ye murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the land of the Amorites to destroy us. <laughs> Whither shall we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying that people is greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to heaven. And moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakims there. The sons of Anak. These were Nephilims. These were hybrids. We're going to encounter one of them. His bed was 13 feet long. There's lots of, incidentally, I didn't bother to bring it into this study, lots of evidence of giants on the planet Earth long, long ago. Every culture on the oh, ancient culture on the planet Earth has legends of the star people, these hybrids. The American Indians, when they met a stranger, would always hold up a hand to count fingers because they had a terror of the six-fingered people. So there's background here we go into. The Anakims. These are what also, the generic term would be Nephilim. If they're post-flood, they're typically called Rephaim, and we'll talk about those. The post-flood Nephilim, if you will. Genesis 6-4, also after that it occurs. And we'll find these tribal names, the Rephaim, which means the walking dead, the dead ones. The Emim, the Zorim, the Zemzumim. We'll, we'll run into these here shortly. And... Uh, Arba, Anak, and his seven sons. They're called Anakim. They were encountered in Canaan. Numbers 13, verse 33. What they encountered were the fallen ones. The word Nephilim comes from the verb Nephal. They're the fallen ones. Yes, they happen to be giants, but that's not the important factor. They were something, they were strange creatures. We're going to encounter one of the most important ones here shortly. This guy by the name of Og. He's the king of Bashan. We encounter him in, in Deuteronomy 3. Goliath. Remember Goliath? I don't know about the story of Goliath. He apparently was a descendant of these guys. When David went across the brook to encounter Goliath, he took five stones and put it in his pocket. Why five? He only needed one. You do your homework, you discover that Goliath had four brothers. Boy, does that give you an insight in David. He's ready, he's ready for all five. I like that. See, Satan's always had a strategy to thwart the plan of God. The corruption of Adam's line was his strategy in Genesis 6. That's why to get, get around that, God uh, uh, brings the flood. The, as God reveals his, his plans to be through Abraham, Abraham is singled out by Satan, Genesis 12 and 20. The famine in Genesis 50. The destruction of the male line by Pharaoh in Exodus 1, Satan's plot to try to thwart the plan of God. Even after he lets them go, Pharaoh's pursuit after them. Uh, in Exodus 14. The populating of Canaan. You know, when, when God told Abraham that his, his descendants would come back to the land of Canaan after four centuries, Satan had four centuries to lay down a minefield. And that's what the Rephaim are. And that's why certain tribes, God instructs Joshua to wipe out every man, woman, and child. We'll come to that when the time comes. When God reveals that his plan is going to be through the David, then David is singled out by Satan. And Joram kills all his brothers except one. The Arabians killed everybody but Hazariah. Athaliah kills all but one child, Joash. You go through the whole line of David. There's always an attack on the royal line, but there's always somebody who slips through. Hezekiah, Saul, and so forth. Haman's attempt in the Persian Empire, he was, a, he was a, a, a Hitler type, to wipe out all the Jews. He almost succeeded, but for God's intervention. And uh, get to the New Testament. Joseph fears for Mary. Going to have her put away privately because it was penalty of to be, be stoned if she was, you know, illegitimately conceiving. Herod's attempts. And all the babes in Bethlehem. This is Satan's attempt to thwart the plan of God. At Nazareth, when they try to throw Jesus off, off a cliff. The two storms at sea are supernatural storms. You study Mark 4 and Luke 8 carefully. And, of course, the ultimate was the cross. But the important reason I'm going through all this is God, Satan is not through. He's still at it. Let me give you an enigma just to think about. 
What does the Golan Heights, Hebron, and the Gaza Strip have in common? These were the areas that Joshua failed to exterminate the Rephaim. This is a map that uh, shows the strongholds that Israel failed to defeat completely in the book of Judges. Janine, Nablus, Ramallah, Jericho, Bet Yarah, the moon, house of the moon god, Jerusalem, Gaza. These are the areas that are still in dispute to this day. There's something supernatural going on here? You bet. The real war is not between the Hamas and uh, uh, Eric Sharon or whatever. It's a spiritual war. Very real. Let's move on. Back to Deuteronomy 1, verse 29. And I said unto you, Dread not, neither be afraid of them. Lord your God, which goeth before you, shall fight for you according to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, in the wilderness where thou hast uh, seen, how that the Lord thy God bare thee as a man doth bear his son. He's our father, right? In all the way that ye went until ye came unto this place. God is a tender, loving father provided for them. And all the people need to do is look at the recent past to get confident. See how God has protected them and sustained them. And uh, they didn't need to be afraid. Because the Lord uh, did not intend to destroy them, but to fight for them. So the whole issue becomes, one, do you trust the Lord or not? And uh, so, I, you know, uh, that, that's the thrust of Moses reminding them what God has done for them so far. goes on, he says, Yet in this thing ye did not believe the Lord your God, who went in the way before you to search out a place to pitch your tents in, in fire by night, and to show you about what way you should go, uh, and in a cloud by day. Remember the Shekinah, the, the, the glory? The Lord heard the voice of your words and was wroth. Really? The Lord heard the voice of your words and was wroth. And so I said, by the way, well, if you go back, <laughs> uh, in, uh, uh, back in verse 27, they were murmuring in their tents privately. Back in verse 27. Moses, the Lord heard your voice of your words. You know, it doesn't surprise us Yet it does surprise us to realize that God hears everything you say. God hears everything you say. When you're in the garage alone and you hit your thumb with a hammer, He heard you. <laughs> the Lord heard the voice of your words and was wroth and swore, saying, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swear to give unto your fathers. It's very interesting. The people were murmuring, saying that God brought us out here to kill us. God says, well, it wasn't what I had in mind, but if that's, that's the way it's going to be. You came out here to kill our children. No, 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 you got it backwards. Your children are the ones that are going to the promised land. You guys are going to die off, guys. And not just naturally, you'll discover something that surprised me as I was doing my homework here, is that God saw to it through pestilences and other things that they died off. It wasn't like he just, you know, waited for them to... Old age guys, no. It, it was a little more participative than that, apparently. Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swear to give unto your fathers. The word fathers or forefathers here occurs 20 times, 21 times in Deuteronomy uh, and primarily to stress Israel's relationship to the covenant promises that were committed to their forefathers. That's why that forefather, the link, is so important because that's, that's the connection to the commitments of God through their forefathers. Now, God also swore to exclude every warrior of the rebellious generation from the promised land. Only Caleb and Joshua were accepted from this. They were, verse 36 here, Save Caleb and the son of Jehunah, and he shall see it, and to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon, and to his children, because he hath wholly followed the Lord. Are you wholly following the Lord? Don't raise your hand. Think about it. Caleb did. He was blessed for it. And of course, so was Joshua. You'll get to that in a minute. Also, the Lord was angry with me, and Moses speaking, angry with me for your sakes, saying, Thou shalt not go in thither. You know, it may come as a shock to you, but God's judgment was extended even to Moses. Yeah. God was very indignant and very disappointed in Moses' own behavior. You may recall. 
And that's what he, he says. He's angry with me also for your sakes. Not that He's not blaming the people, but the people created a situation which caused Moses to blow it. The second time with the water and so forth. You know the story. Because of that Moses failure there, Meribah, he was prohibited from going into the land himself. He would be able to see it from a hilltop, but he was denied entrance. Can you imagine this guy? He was 40 years in Egypt, then 40 years in training in Midian, then the Exodus, and 40 years wandering in the wilderness. 120 years on this tour of duty, guys. And he's taken out of the ball game right at the, at the main event because he blew it. See, that's, that, this gets into a whole issue. I'll, leave you, I'll let you finish your own sermon here about finishing well. Ben Franklin said, well begun is half done. Let's remember it's only half done. Many of us here in this room may have had a good start. But finishing well is the name of the game. And probably one of the most discouraging things to many Christians is to see major Christian leaders stumble and fall. No, the idea is to follow through to the finish line. Not for your salvation, the Lord has taken care of that, but for the rewards. For the destiny that God really has available to us if we will but trust Him. And the Lord was angry with me, Moses says, for your sake, saying, Thou shalt not go in thither. He's God talking to Moses. But Joshua the son of Nun, which standeth before thee, he shall go in thither and encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. So from now on, Moses' primary job will be to encourage and strengthen Joshua for the task that Moses would have preferred to have for himself. God is looking for wholehearted support, not half-hearted. Deuteronomy 1, verse 39. Moreover, your little ones, which ye said would be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn you, take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. You know, this verse is full of some interesting insights. The children were not held responsible for the parents' cowardice, but rather were assured possession of the land. Well, the parents were sent back to the desert, you know, the 38 years wandering. It's interesting that the author of the book of Hebrews will later point to the wilderness strewn with corpses of the generation as a grim reminder of the, con- the, of the, of the uh, consequences of a believer's lack of confidence in God's power. When we fail to appreciate the power of God, we're poking our finger in his eye. That's disturbing stuff. We get so enamored with grace that we fail to realize that Deuteronomy is going to really make us conscious of our responsibility for obedience. Obedience. Now, by the way, the age, of, the age of accountability, age of responsibility, may be much older than you and I normally think of it. We think of the Jewish practice of bar mitzvahs, what, 13 or whatever. Um, uh, some of these kids that entered the promised land went in as teenagers, and they're still below the age of accountability. That's interesting. See, we know from Numbers 14, verse 29, that God set the age at 20. You're under 20, you were on your way in. Those days, there is no, I'm not implying that we apply that today because that's a, that's a big theological question. What is the age of accountability? But uh, it was those that were 20 and older that died in the wilderness in, in, uh, in this experience. Now something else to notice from this passage, children who die in infancy are saved. People always, trouble, parents get troubled by that. Yes, for lots of reasons. David's son, when he died, says, I will be with him. He, he makes that remark. And Paul gives you a very complicated analysis, but there's a verse in, in Romans 7 that, that also emphasizes the idea that a child is below the age of accountability is saved. I think this is another indication of that principle right here. Okay, let's move on. And then he answered and said unto me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight according to all that the Lord our God had commanded us. Hey, too late now, guys. When ye had, and when ye had girded on every man his weapons of war, ye were ready to go up into the hill. And the Lord said unto me, Say unto them, Go not up, neither fight, for I am not among you, lest ye be smitten before your enemies. Don't go up fighting now, guys. I'm not with you. You don't want to fight if the Lord's not with you. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> That's a 
We have sinned against the Lord. They were all ready to go to battle now. But see, the insincerity of their confession is rather transparent. It's really a second act of rebellion, in effect. The fickleness of the people is just obviously... Uh, yeah, they... Uh, well, we won't we have to do all that. We'll keep moving. We're getting behind here. Verse 43, so Moses says, So I spake unto you, and ye would not hear, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, and went presumptuously up unto the hill. And the Amorites, which dwelt in that mountain, came out against you, and chased you as bees do, and destroyed you in Seir, even unto Hormah. So they had a major, major setback. And uh, it was the Negev, the southern portion of Canaan. The Negev means south, but it's the desert area to the south. And Seir, by the way, here is an early name for Edom. We'll be talking about Edom as we go forward. But uh, most continue, you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not hearken to your voice nor give an ear unto you. So ye abode in Kiddush many days, according unto the days that ye abode there. So they blew it. They wouldn't go when God was with them. And then when he wasn't with them, they foolish enough to go and they got clobbered. Verse chapter 2. <clears throat> then we returned and took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spake unto me, and we compassed Mount Seir many days. And uh, the Lord spake unto me, saying, Ye have compassed this mountain long enough. Turn you northward. <laughs> They're hanging around there long enough. Time to get moving, guys. You've got 38 years to burn off here. <laughs> so... It's interesting, in spite of this 40-year judgment, thus pronounced, on that ungrateful and rebellious generation, God had not given up on the people. You know, it's astonishing, as you really understand the Scripture, it's astonishing to really appreciate the patience of God. His patience to His handling of Israel should give us comfort, because it also points to His patience in dealing with us. Long-suffering is the term that's often used, but it's sort of a quaint old English word. But it's descriptive, long-suffering. And uh, so in spite of all his setbacks, Moses could still say, the Lord spake unto me. See, God hasn't given up. He's still dealing with the nation through Moses, still guiding the nation, has not abandoned his plan. The, says Moses, and command thou the people, saying, ye are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir. That's Edom, in other words, Edomites. And they shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore. Meddle not with them. For I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a footbreath, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. So Esau, with all his failings, is under God's protection. Ye shall not buy meat of them for money that ye may eat. Ye shall also buy, wa uh, buy water of them for money that ye may drink. Understand, this is desert time. So one of the tough things is water. That's one of the reasons that these flies are apprehensive about this crowd coming through the land. It isn't the land, it's the water. For the Lord thy God hath blessed thee in all the works of thy hand, thy hand. He knoweth thy walking through this great wilderness. These forty years the Lord thy God hath been with thee. Thou hast lacked nothing. Can you imagine that? Thou hast lacked nothing. It was forty years. Wandering nomads in the desert. Provided for. Supernaturally. By the Lord. Seventy years. And so this all should have motivated him to obey his immediate instructions. When we passed by from our brethren, the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, through the way of the plain of Elath, and from the Izion Geber, a place that we would call Elath, uh, we turned and passed by the way of the wilderness of Moab. The Lord said, Any distress not the Moabites. Here again, they're going to be under protection. Because see, they're both descendants of Abraham, is the point. Lord said unto me, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in the battle, for I will not give thee of their land for a possession, because I have given our unto the children of Lot for a possession. Again, relationships are being preserved. Now, one of the things that I should mention here, the next few verses are going to be an added editor's note that causes some scholars difficulty. Let's just take a look at it here. We'll talk about the tribes mentioned here in a minute. But the Emims dwelt therein in times past, a people great and many and tall as the Anakims, which were accounted giants as the Anakims. But the Moabites called them Emims. That's their name for the, Anakim, for the Anakims. The Horims also dwelt in Seir before time. But the children of Esau succeeded them when they had destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their stead, as Israel did unto the land of his possession, which the Lord gave unto them. Now this is an explanation, but it's clearly been added after the conquest of the land. So some people say, well, gee, that just proves that Moses didn't write all this. No, there's an editorial note added. Now, what are we going to do about that? This raises some questions about inspiration. Let's talk a little bit about the inspiration of the Scripture. 
The original texts we know are God-breathed from 2 Timothy 3.16. The original texts, not the translations, the original texts are God-breathed. That's the term used in the Greek. They contain no errors. Titus 1.2 is one of the seven different places in Scripture. God cannot lie. So take comfort in that. Furthermore, we know from Luke, first four verses of his gospel, the Holy Spirit superintended the work, just as he did the historical research of Luke. The Holy Spirit's active. And by the way, perhaps the most telling issue of all, Jesus Christ pronounced the text perfect. Matthew 5.18, John 10.35, and elsewhere. So the reason we can be so comfortable with the text, even with the... By the way, this also includes editorial insertions. They were in there when Christ authenticated it. You with me? Holy Spirit, we're not looking to Moses' diligence that the text is accurate. We're, we're relying on the Holy Spirit's diligence as Jesus authenticated it. You with me? So don't waste your time, unless you're trying to do a PhD thesis or something, don't waste your time chasing down all those rabbit trails. Trust God, trust His text, move on from there. Unless you've got a lot of time to waste and you're really interested in boring library research. You'll come out the same place, by the way. Anyway, verse 10, let's go to those verses again. The Emims dwelt therein in times past, a people great and many and tall, as the Anakims. See, the Rephaim were known for their tall stature, as we talked about, the giants, all through the Old Testament. The Moabites called the Rephaim the Emim, which means terrors or the dreaded ones is what the term means. And the Horim uh, may have been some kind of a non-Semitic Hurrian people in the minds of some scholars that were scattered in Palestine, Syria, and Mesopotamia uh, in those areas. They, they occupied Syria before Esau, but Esau was able to subdue them and take over, which is another indication that they should have been able to do that, certainly with God's help. Sure, they're formidable, but they... The Edomites succeeded on getting them. You follow me? Because they, they preceded them. So, so one of these, these, these notes here that have been added are intended to underscore the fact that no enemy is invincible. That's the point. So uh, the Horims also dwelt in Syria before time. The children of Esau succeeded them when they had destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their stead, as Israel did unto the land of their, his possession. So these are just demonstrating that their fears are unfounded, were premature, especially with God on their side. So Moses continues now, and rise up, said I, and get you over the brook Zered. And we went over the brook Zered. Now crossing that brook was critical because that, that there's a, they're trusting, they're finally following and they're obedient, obeying. And the space in which we came from Kadesh Barnea until we were come over the brook Zered was 30 and 8 years. You know, it's interesting, it only took about 3 days to get Israel out of Egypt. But it took 38 years to get Egypt out of Israel. until all the generations of the men of war were wasted from among the host as the Lord swore unto them. And for indeed the hand of the Lord was against them. Notice that the hand of the Lord was against them. They didn't just die naturally. The hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from among the host until they were consumed. And that makes it clear the entire generation of fighting men that should have been fighting earlier, four years earlier, didn't die of natural deaths as we might think of them. The, 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 there was a destroying pestilence against them in effect. And the, uh, by the way, the, uh, the first part of Deuteronomy uh, verse, uh, 2, verse 15, should be rendered, the Lord's hand was against them to panic or confuse them. The word for panic or confuse is, uh, if I got it here, I think I have, yeah, is, is hamam, to panic, confuse, destroy, or crush. Yeah, to destroy them, but destroy them actively, not just passively is, the, is part of the thought there. And... Uh, so it came to pass when all the men of war were consumed and dead from among the people. Now the Lord speaking to me, saying, Thou art to pass over through Ar, the coast of Moab, this day. And when thou comest nigh over against the children of Ammon, distress them not, nor meddle with them, for I will not give thee of the land of the children of Ammon any possession, because I have given it to the children of Lot for, thy, for a possession. So it's again, just like the, the, uh, the, other, uh, the Edomites were. That also was accounted a land of giants. Giants dwelt therein in old time, for the Ammonites called them Zemzumims. So we run and count them all the way through. A people great and many and tall as the Anakims. But Anakims is the way it's translated. That's actually a mistranslation because Anakim is a plural. In the Hebrew, the I-M ending is a plural. Cherub is singular. Cherubim is plural. See? So it should be Anakim, but the King James has an S in there because of who knows why, but it's just an aside. But when you say Anakim, you're already... Anak is singular. Anakim is plural. Anyway... 
But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead. And he did the children of Esau, which dwelt in Seir, which he destroyed the Horms from before them, and they succeeded them and dwelt in their stead even this day. Again, this is another editorial insertion, editorial explanation, a summary thing. And, uh, but it's interesting that the, uh, these destruction of the Anakim is always, even when it's pagan people, is attributed to God. And uh, Paul would later write in Acts 17, verse 26, that it's God who sets the times and the boundaries of all the peoples on the earth. So as we watch what's going on, as we watch border disputes, as we watch what's going on in Israel, realize the one who sets the borders, whether we realize it or not, is the, is the Lord. And your authority for that is Acts 17.26. Let's move on. And the Avims which developed in Hazarim, even the Azah, the Kaftorims which came forth out of Kaftor, destroyed them and dwelt in their stead. Now the Avites were probably uh, as far west as Gaza, and they were destroyed by another people, the Kaftorites, which were probably an early name for the Philistines, because Kaftor is from Crete. The Philistines came from Egypt to, to Crete, and then in, they weren't Cretans, they were originally from Egypt. But anyway, Kaftor is one of the early names for all that. But anyway, rise ye up and take your journey and pass over the river Arnon. Behold, I have given unto thine hand Sihon the Amorite, the king of Heshbon, and his hand. Begin to possess it and contend with him in battle. So here God is telling him, go after this guy. Now this guy is a pretty interesting guy. We're going to, we're going to see more of that when we get to chapter 3. This day will I begin to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who, will, who shall hear, report of thee, and shall tremble and be in anguish because of thee. And I sent messengers out of the wilderness of Ketaboth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through the land, and I will go along by the highway. I will neither turn unto the right hand or to the left. There's a region, north-south highway, they call it the King's Highway. But uh, that's, he was going to stay on the King's Highway. That was all good, except uh, the king didn't allow that. Uh, anyway, thou shalt sell me meat for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only I will pass through on my feet. As the children of Esau, which, will, uh, uh, which dwell in Seir, and Moach, which dwell in Ar, did unto me. Until I shall pass over the Jordan unto the land which the Lord our God giveth us. So he's just asking for safe passage, and he'll pay his way, is what he's saying. But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into thy hand as appeareth this day. So the king Sion uh, rejected the offer. It's interesting that the Hebrew verbs, hardening of his mind and heart or will, is, uh, is, uh, it means that he confirmed what was already in his heart. It's just like the same situation, same Rhetorical device occurs in, in Egypt with Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. He didn't make him. He just gelled or, or, or solidified his, his, his intent there. And the Sion's arrogant refusal was a sign that he'd just thrown away his one chance of survival. So since God controls all history, Moses could say that the Lord our God delivered him over to us, is what he's saying. So then Sion came out against us, he and all his people, to fight at Jahaz. And Lord, the Lord our God delivered him before us, and we smote him and his sons and all his people. That's quite a sentence. We're, and we get to chapter 7, we're going to talk about that. They wiped out every man, woman, and child. That sounds harsh to us. We'll get into some of that before we're through. And we took all the cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men, the women, and the little ones of every city. We left none to remain. This sounds like tribal genocide, doesn't it? Doesn't it shock you? It shocks many people. I haven't thought it through. See, they deserve to die for their sin. That's Deuteronomy 9 is going to deal with that. 9 verses 4 and 5. They had persisted in their hatred of God, as identified in Deuteronomy 7. This will all be developed later. The Canaanites constituted a moral cancer. That's emphasized in Deuteronomy 20, Numbers 33, and of course in Joshua 23. So we've got to deal, we're dealing with a, a moral cancer here. And by the way, Jesus Christ is going to return to slaughter the unrepentant wicked on the earth, and he's going to make these, these guys look like a picnic. There's a bumper sticker, perhaps a little irrelevant, that Jesus is coming back, and boy, is he mad. Now, it's a little irrelevant, but it happens to be scripturally right. Because our kinsman redeemer is also our avenger of blood. Same guy, same term, the goel in the Hebrew. Do you understand what, that, what his job is? You can check 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 19 to get, get that in perspective. Let's move on. 
Verse 35, only the cattle we took for a prey unto ourselves and the spoil of the cities which we took from Ur, which is the brink of the river Arnon, and from the city that is by the river, even unto Gilead, there was not one city too strong for us. We're talking 60 cities, by the way. Too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered unto all of us. And uh, only the land, the land of the children of Ammon came us, uh, came us not, nor on any place of the river Jabbok or in the cities, the mountains, nor unto whatsoever the Lord our God forbade us. That's coming. So ends chapter 2 and session 1. We started a little late, for which I apologize. Because we started late, what I'm going to encourage you to do, we normally have a cookie break. Let's make it 7 minutes rather than 15. That'll start us at 8.30, and I'll get you out of here by no later than 9.30, 9.35. That sound fair? We usually try to break 9.15, but I know a lot of you have driven a long way. Some of you have driven all the way from Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah, I want to get you going. <laughs>